Dear listeners, this episode grapples with the subject of child sex abuse. Please listen at your own discretion. And they do say these things that are just extraordinary to you and me, but to them seem very normal. So one guy who was on my podcast, he's a pedophile, and he was saying like that he needs to be around children. He says that he would never offend, but he has to be around them. And I said, but isn't it better for everyone if you just sort of absolve yourself from that entire situation, just get away from it? And he said, no, no, it makes me more likely to offend if I don't see them. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. Andrew Gold is not afraid to explore taboo topics. He's made documentaries about modern exorcisms and abortion. On his podcast, On the Edge, he's interviewed controversial people, including a former white supremacist, an ex-crime boss, and a self-professed psychopath. On the Edge is a podcast that grapples with taboo subject matter, but it isn't edgy just for the sake of being edgy. Rather, Andrew explores the extremes because the most difficult problems in society are the ones people are afraid to even talk about. And the most taboo topic Andrew has ever explored is pedophilia. Any kind of abuse to children, any kind of touching children is not just wrong, it's pretty much the most abhorrent thing that any of us can think of in our society. And at the moment, in the States, for example, one in nine girls are sexually abused as children, and it's horrific. I think it's something around one in 40 boys. And again, any statistics you have to take with a pinch of salt because so much is unreported. So what do we do with that? Well, most of us want to just shut our ears and just go, oh no, but I don't want to talk about it for several reasons. One, it's just simply, it's taboo. Another is, oh, if I talk about it too much, will people suspect me, right? Well, I think that's a little bit cowardly of all of us and we have to start thinking, what do we do? We broached the same taboo in episode 10 of Labyrinths, one bite of the elephant at a time, about the way the authorities in Washington state lured potential predators online and then arrested and incarcerated them for attempted crimes against hypothetical children. These sex abuse stings were morally complicated because they could be viewed as entrapment, and they ran the risk of incarcerating people who've never actually offended, punishing their potential threat to society. This strategy is motivated largely by the conviction that all pedophiles are ruthless child molesters, but the reality is, some people who are sexually attracted to children actually resist their urges. Some even formed anonymous support groups online, the idea being that, like in the world of addiction, acknowledging you have a problem is the first step towards recovery. That said, the stigma is so great that very few pedophiles acknowledge their condition, even to themselves. The hard question for all of us then is, does that stigma help them to not offend, or does it just make it harder for them to seek help? In researching this question, Andrew discovered some people in Berlin taking a very unconventional approach to the problem of child sex abuse and pedophilia. So he moved to Germany to investigate. In Berlin, they have the world's only clinic where they don't ever report 
pedophiles to authorities, no matter what. They can't. So even if a pedophile were to go in and tell them that they did horrible things, there's not really very much that the clinic can do because they don't take their names. That's the whole point. It's obviously very, very controversial because it means that these are trained clinicians who are then letting these people go back onto the street potentially to offend. That's a horrible thought that we have trouble wrapping our minds around. At the same time, they can never really prove much. It is thought that this would encourage a lot more of these people to come in. Is it like a a suicide hotline where someone says, I'm having suicidal ideation and I need to talk to somebody who could talk me down? Like, how how does the treatment work? It is state-sponsored and it's a clinic called Project Dunkelfeld or Dark Field. Sometimes they also go by Don't Offend or kind titter verden, don't become a a criminal, an offender. Um, And their adverts are all over TV, all over the internet, and all over like the metro in Berlin. You see it all over the place. So these people are encouraged to call up and then they come in in Berlin and they actually go in and speak face-to-face with therapists there. If you remember like from from the 90s and 2000s, there were these peer-to-peer downloaders where you'd get your Britney and Green Day mashups or whatever. And no one uses them anymore, really. But apparently a lot of child sexual abuse material does go out through there, which is very sad really to think of. And the clinic puts fake videos where it encourages somebody to download them. Then once they've downloaded them, actually what opens is, you know, an advert for don't offend. Mm. It says, here's our number, just give us a call, totally anonymous. So it's anonymous, the clinicians do see their faces. So it's not as anonymous as they'd probably like it. And it's difficult. These guys go in and there's like graffiti outside saying, hang the pedos, that kind of thing. And that sort of flies in the face of what the clinicians are trying to do by reducing stigmatization Mm. around their sexuality. But then it's just such a complicated topic. So they'll go there and they'll be going for months or years. And the idea is that by the end of it, they're better and they are less likely to offend and our children are safer. I think... One of the other issues that comes to mind is I've interviewed people who are 100% convinced that there is no cure to pedophilia. And so how does one offer support to a pedophile? Mm -hmm. I swear I've absolutely interviewed somebody who was like, I think we should just round them all up and shoot them. And I was like, okay, well, what's the very opposite approach to that? There is no... uh exact consensus on what makes someone a pedophile, whether they're born that way, whether there is to some extent choice. We don't know enough about sexuality in general and what people are attracted to. We do know historically there were examples where child adult sex was more acceptable in society. And I'm very careful talking about that to not to say, well, oh, those were the good old days. That was awful. And we'd like to think we've moved on in the last few thousand years. It is thought about 1% of the population have this condition. If it's a conditional illness, again, we we don't exactly know. And there's a lot of theories swirling around. You look at someone like Michael Jackson, you think of his childhood being stunted. Mm. Is it sort of getting stuck at a certain age? I've heard some clinicians talk about that. So with regards to curing it, very few doctors I've spoken to around the world have suggested you can do that. But one did. He was suggesting that it tends to be uh, depressed, lonely men, because they are mostly men, who are unable to form relationships with people their own age, and they sort of resort to children, and they need to be made more confident, and they need to learn to climax watching adult porn, uh, stuff like that. But Hmm. he's sort of a lone outsider. And I said to him, you know, well, that sounds a little bit like sexual conversion. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Um, yeah, sexual conversion therapy, yeah. 
Yeah, which is abhorrent as well. And he was saying no, because he doesn't view pedophilia as a sexuality. So that's just him. Most people sort of do. They won't say exactly the terminology, but they suggest it can't be cured. You've got this 1% of the population. It's actually an enormous amount of people. It's larger than the army in most countries. And it's very scary for us. You have of these people, a small section of them are probably psychopathic and they're going to offend no matter what. And there's not much that this clinic can do to stop them. And that's where laws come in. That's where just trying to be safe with children comes in. And then on the other side, you've got the guys who are just never going to offend. They have the attraction and they know it's wrong and they won't do it. And then in the middle, you've got these are the people that the therapy can help. These are the mm. people who are tempted the whole time and they have a lot of cognitive biases. So they go to the therapy and they are disabused of their cognitive biases. They say there are three major risk factors. Uh, one is drinking, like alcohol or drug, you know, that kind of thing, because it lowers their inhibitions. So anything that lowers your inhibitions. Exactly. Yeah. The other is um, uh, stigmatization. So if they are made to feel like they are outsiders, they're made to feel like they're monsters, then they're more likely to act like monsters. And that's where the clinic sort of puts the pressure on us to change how we speak about the whole thing. The third one is whether they are around children. It's like so obvious to us. And to some of them, it's not. And again, I'm always having to say, like, I don't mean everyone, but they do tend to go towards jobs like teaching and like camp counseling and uh, religious priests and imams and rabbis and things. And I'm not tarring them all with one brush. It's still a very small percentage of those people. But they do tend to go into those kind of professions and they do try to be around children, even when they're telling themselves, like, oh, I would never do it. They're like alcoholics working hmm. in a bar, basically. So that is how they try to treat these guys. They try to disabuse them of those cognitive biases. The question of how clinicians or authorities should address the problem of child sex abuse is complicated enough on its own but it can't really be divorced from a careful look into who the potential offenders are and the recognition that some of them may harbor pedophilic desires but are not acting upon them. So Andrew started to meet the people who struggle with this condition. And that's when things started to get strange. I first got in touch with the clinic. I told them that I would like to write a book, which is what I'm trying to do. I told them I want to talk to these people and they said that's going to be impossible. So I just kept pushing as journalists do. And they said, okay, we will email a few people then. And they've got these fake mm. emails for everyone. So the clinic got in touch with them and said, there's a journalist who wants to speak to you. Now, a lot of these people are desperate to get it off their chests. They haven't been able mm. to tell anybody their whole lives. So... I got a few emails, you know, tentative and a bit, you know, hi, I'm so-and-so. I've been going to the therapy for a while. What is it exactly you want to know? And then one guy who got in touch was called Max. It's not his real name, but that's all I know him as. And he said, hi, what are you doing? I can meet you today. And I was like, oh, oh my God. Okay, okay. And I'd been waiting months for that. And he gave me an address. And the address was a public swimming pool. And I was like, that's a weird place for me to meet a pedophile. But okay, that's what he wanted to meet. And it had to be today, he said. So I cycled down to this place to go and meet him. My heart just got going crazy because, you know, I've met strange, weird people before. But I've never, as a journalist, gone and done this. And, and also all sorts of things are going through my mind. Like, am I getting in too deep here? And I go down to the swim bad, the swimming pool, and I queue up. 
go in and I'm messaging, how will I recognize you? And he sort of appears and he's got his like uh, Speedo trunks, t-shirt hanging down to his knees, maybe mid thirties, slightly chubby, quite pasty, white. And I thought, okay, looks the part. And then to my surprise, he had a little girl with him. So I was just like, at that point, you know, my heart was coming out of my mouth. I was just flabbergasted at this point. Like, okay, what have I, I'm in too deep. What the hell is going on here? He sent her off to like do whatever in the swimming pools. And then I sat down with him and I'm thinking the whole time, I can't just like shout at him or something because if something's going on here, that's not right. I need to try and subtly find out because I don't have his real name. The clinic doesn't have it. So there's no point just me being all judgmental. And then he just runs away and I never get contact with him again. So I said, what's what's going on then? So tell me, who's the girl like trying to be really casual? And he says, I'm babysitting her. And I'm trying not to show that I'm like, this is awful. So I said like, okay, well, do, do, the, do the parents know? And as I'm saying this, two other young girls, these are all about 11 or 12 years old, come over and, you know, hi, Max, can we have some more ice cream or whatever? So he's babysitting three girls from two different mothers. And I went and... <laughs> I kept pushing and I was like, this doesn't sound right because he said that he told them about his condition and stuff and they trust him. So a week or two later, I went and met the mother in her house and it was all true. And she was like an extreme leftist um, who saw her role as sort of helping these minorities in, in the pedophiles. And she was like, well, why shouldn't he be able to look after them? I was like, well, look, I get that in principle, but like, it's a swimming pool. He might be getting sexual gratification from them. And she was actually saying like, well, look, I don't care what goes on in his head as long as he's not doing anything to them. And I was like, well, that's not fair to put them through that because when they find out in 20 years that you did that, they might not be so happy. They can't give their consent to him getting sexual gratification from taking you to a swimming pool. So the whole thing was just crazy. And from there, just got like crazier and crazier over like a couple of years. I kept meeting. How do you get crazier than that story? Please (laughs) enlighten me. (laughs) (laughs) I stayed in contact with him for a long time, Max, talking back and forward. And it's so hard because what do I say at the end of the day? It really affected me actually seeing him. And I got very emotional, which doesn't usually happen to me. After I felt dirty, I needed to have a shower. I didn't know what to do. I did get in touch with the clinic, of course. And they said, well, look, we can't prove whether he's doing anything or not. Uh, To get involved without knowing anything could be traumatic for the children. And we don't even know what his real name is. So there was nothing they could do. So that was a horrible, weird experience. But I should state as well, I don't know that he's abusing those children. In fact, I imagine he probably isn't. But I still don't, I'm not comfortable. I mean, this is what I mean with the cognitive biases is that he should know he's not supposed to be surrounding himself with children, especially in situations Mm. like that. So this isn't necessarily the clinic's fault because he's not doing what he was taught to do. In terms of stranger, I guess the strangest, I would say, is a female. It was a 25-year-old woman. And the reason it's the strangest is because there are so few female pedophiles. And that took like a year to meet someone like that. I was pushing and pushing and delving deeper into these contacts and they all know each other. Mm. And eventually they introduced me to this 25-year-old woman who had a boyfriend who was 27 and both of them were non-offending pedophiles who were attracted to babies. So yeah, that's the weirdest one. Really, really tough one. And I, I went and met them in a tiny village somewhere in Germany middle of nowhere. And they were very nice and courteous with me. They were very emotional Mm. to tell me because they'd never told anyone this. And now they're suddenly telling a journalist. 
and they were shaking because they were so nervous. I actually felt quite bad for them. And I found it hard to believe the the woman. I, and I suppose that might come from some sort of sexist notion of like women being mm. more maternal or, or just being less sexual or whatever ridiculous bias I had in my mind. And, and there are fewer of them. Um, but yeah, I kept asking her, like, are you sure this isn't some sort of maternal feeling for for babies and or or what happens a lot with people is something called pocd which is pedophile ocd um obviously ocd is accompanied by intrusive thoughts and people often think what's the worst Mm. thing that i could have Mm. and obviously that is the worst thing you could have so an outrageous number of people with ocd convince themselves that they are pedophiles to the point of imagining having offended mm. when they haven't. And a lot of them go to the clinic as well and are then told to go to a, a different kind of therapist. Interesting. And she was very offended, this woman, when I suggested that. She was saying, no, 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 I know what I am. I know what I feel. And I know I'll never act on it. But this is me. At one point, you mentioned that there are more pedophiles out there than we know. You also mentioned that it's difficult to even exactly say what qualifies someone to be a pedophile. And I think that that Mm -hmm. is a really important point because you don't have to go to Pornhub to see that young women become sex objects Mm -hmm. very early in a lot of cases and and to people who I think would not necessarily identify as pedophiles. So I'd be curious to know, like, how Mm -hmm. does our culture grapple with the sexualization of budding adolescent sexuality, and where do we draw the line? It's so complicated, isn't it? There are two different types of pedophiles. So there's there are pedophile, pedophile, and then there are these things called hebophiles or hebophiles, and they are people who are attracted apparently to sort of twelve year olds to to seventeen year olds. Right? We would classify them as that, and I think there have been a lot historically. I think and evolutionarily, right? And, and I don't know enough about this. People live, a lot of the time didn't live as long and people were having sex after puberty. Now our society's evolved beyond that. And so we know in our society, it's wrong to be having sexual relations with somebody who's under the age of 18. In the UK, it's 16. And there's a very good reason we have those uh, limits because someone younger than that is not able to consent in our society. But it doesn't mean the evolutionary mm. thing goes away. Some of the women that are like a lot of the A-list celebrities go after. You look at some of Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriends over the years, and you're like, man, what's Mm. going on in his head? Andrew is not exaggerating about Leo DiCaprio's dating preferences. One Reddit user even made a fascinating chart of his dating history, showing that he's never in his life dated a woman over 25 years old. And as recently as age 43, he was dating a 20-year-old. But would the average male be any different if they had DiCaprio's looks, wealth, and social status? Not according to OkCupid, which has over 50 million users and routinely releases fascinating statistics. While the average woman rates men as most attractive when the man is roughly proportional to her own age, the average man, on the other hand, rates women most attractive when they are 20 to 22 years old, whether he is 20 or 50. Is this discrepancy relevant to the question of pedophilia? Perhaps. We know that men are, on average, attracted to young women. This isn't surprising in an evolutionary context, for women reach peak fertility biologically by their late teens, and fertility begins to decline after 30. 
and historically, it was not uncommon for girls to be married off and to procreate as soon as they were capable of doing so, in their early teens. While our culture has shifted dramatically, those evolutionary pressures encoded in our genes have not. And if the genes that affect age attraction have most men preferring 20-year-old women, you'd expect that like any human trait, you'd find extremes at either end, with some small percentage of men who prefer much older women and some who prefer much younger. The question is, what do you do about that? So that is a really difficult thing for our society to grapple with. So you were talking about the statistics. So we don't know exactly, but there have been some surveys and things done over the years in different colleges and things like that. And you do tend to find about 1% are exclusive pedophiles. So those are the people who are unable to form relationships. And that's 1% mm. of men, I should say. Uh, women, it's mm. much lower than that. But unable to form adult consenting relationships they can only be attracted to children but their lives are hell i mean they can never be with someone and and that's it's not a nice life for them to have and those ones who don't offend deserve our sympathy then when you get into non-exclusive pedophiles then it gets really murky and and you have to also be wary of like even in anonymous surveys who's right. going to really be honest about that and who's going to be honest with themselves but there, there was one survey that found as many as like 20 percent of men had some attraction to at least uh, under 18, they would admit to that. But fortunately, though, a lot of those people were also able to form attraction to adults. And so most of those people aren't bothered by it. They put it to the back of their minds and they have uh, enjoyable, fruitful adult relationships. There's no problem. So it's the 1%, those are the ones that uh, have the diff a difficult time. And they're also the ones that we need mm. to worry about and get into therapy before right. they do anything. The way I look at it is every time something goes wrong, I want to understand why. That's yeah. the way that I function. And wherever it takes me, that's where it takes me. Because honestly, that's the only thing that matters. If you actually care about doing something about something, you have to just delve deep into truths that may be uncomfortable. I always want to talk about things, even if it's difficult. And I've, I've learned that's always the best way forward. And I've learned, I'd like to think, a lot about humans and trying mm. not to judge them and trying not to jump to conclusions. I, I don't want to assume just because somebody is a, a non-offending pedophile that they must have actually offended or that they have worse morals mm. than me. I try never to moralize. The only time I moralize probably is with moralizing people. I find people who moralize a lot really difficult mm. to, to bear. They probably don't like my podcast. They might not like yours either. Again, that doesn't mean you excuse people who think it's like the pedophiles who think it's okay to have adult child sex or whatever. That's where you have to draw the line. But it just means, and I'm sure you feel the same having met a lot of extreme and different mm. and interesting people. You, you just like, we're not mm. better than them. And let's let's hear people and listen to people. Yeah, no, if anything, I've often felt like I'm just luckier. Like, I was lucky to not be born with a very, very difficult, stigmatized condition. No one would ever choose to be a pedophile, so if they exist, then it's not by choice. I am interested, though, in talking about the hysteria. Where is the hysteria coming from? Because, again, like, a part of me, I get it. Like, I'm a mom now. I, I get it. But another part mm. of me is like, okay, but also we have a whole genre that 
millions of people in the world, true crime. They want to, like, dig into the dirty details mm. of murders and serial killers. People who, like, study serial killers for a living never get accused of being serial killers themselves. Why do we not treat pedophilia the same way? And mm. where is this taboo coming from? Because it's not like serial killers don't have sexuality wrapped up into that as well. So why... What is it about pedophilia that does that for people? Why can't we talk about it? Mm. Yeah, it's a funny one. It reminds me of there was a comedian who talked about the term to rape and pillage. The Vikings were raping and pillaging. Andrew's referring to the English comedian David Mitchell. Rape and pillage, rape and pillage. I don't quite understand why it is that pillage should take the curse off rape. Because it does, doesn't it? Add pillage to rape and suddenly it has a certain air of knockabout fun. But pillage is bad enough by itself. It's theft, looting and arson. Being pillaged would be an awful thing to happen to anyone. What it definitely isn't is a spoonful of sugar to help the rape go down. Nonetheless, you can pretty much imagine a jolly uncle saying something like, where are you boys off to tonight? Out raping and pillaging, I'll be bound. But you wouldn't want one of them to reply, well, not pillaging anyway. Raping, awful. Raping and pillaging, funny what you're saying there. Child sexual abuse, worst thing that can ever happen. Child sexual abuse with murder. Right. True crime podcast, right? I, <laughs> I don't know what that is. I mean, if you look at the people who were most vehemently homophobic over the centuries, often it was to hide their own homosexuality. Or it might have just been, again, the intrusive thoughts of like, I don't want anyone to think that's me or there, but for the grace of God, go I. So I think there is that fear. It doesn't mean that these people who have the hysteria around pedophilia are all secretly pedophiles. Of course not. But there's that fear when you're on the top of a building that you might jump off it. Like, what if I just jump suddenly? What if the worst possible thing happens? What if people think mm. that I'm a pedophile, right? And I think it's because of that fear that, that people think others might think they're one. And it's also, we love to attack. I mean, you've experienced that more than anyone. We want to blame and shout and it makes us feel really good. So yeah, whenever there's an excuse to do that and, and pedophilia is one of those ones, you can really shout and scream at someone and everyone will agree. Right. Yeah, no, I'm thinking actually there was a, a poetry magazine scandal and they published a whole edition that was from offenders, people in prison. And Poetry Magazine published this edition mm. to offer a platform for people who had been incarcerated because we, in this more progressive world, are thinking about criminal justice reform, about decreasing the stigma um, associated with having been an offender in the past, allowing people to have served their sentence and move on into the future. In general, just giving this idea that, hey, maybe these people have a worthwhile perspective. Let's offer them a platform to have an artistic voice. Well, there was a yeah. huge scandal because one of the people that they published was a person who had been convicted of child pornography possession. Uh, and uh. it, it's fascinating to me that of all the people that they singled out in that edition, there were murderers in that edition. Nobody batted an eye. But the child pornography possessor was the thing that like got everyone upset. And that to me is just so yeah. fascinating that in people's minds, a person who murders people 
is more worthy of redemption than someone who possessed child pornography. Mm. I don't know if you ran across that. I didn't see it, but that's fascinating. I wrote this article in The the Independent about the changing ways that we interpret offense uh, and, w- and what makes us offended. And I got a lot of this from John McWhorter, who's a professor who was on my podcast. And a lot of it was from his book. Again, I'm the journalist. I'm just repeating his stuff. But it's really fascinating where you see where things went from like 500 years ago. Religion was the main thing everyone was offended by. So if you look at words like darn and heck, which mean nothing to us now, those words were like the worst things you could say. And then it moved on over the years as religion had less of an impact on on us. It moved on to the bodily functions. So things like fucking shit. And so there was more of that Victorian Mm. shame about uh, our bodies now. So we're now the center. Over the last like 30 years, it's become identity groups. So it would make sense to me in that sense that we're more offended by a pedophile, which we see as some sort of identity group. That's that person's sexuality. They got child porn, right? Which we shouldn't call child porn. It's child sexual abuse material because porn implies that they willingly took part. So look, what they did is awful and it contributes to to the pain of that child every time uh, a pedophile downloads that stuff. So it is terrible. But it, it makes sense to me anyway, and that we're more offended by that identity than we are by maybe a murderer. We don't see murderers as really an identity. You don't say, I identify as a murderer. Often it's just like a one-time mm-hmm. thing that happened. So we attack people for who they are inside. That might be why child porn trumps actual mm. murderer Interesting. in that sense. Looking at pedophiles, everyone I know wants to just shut off and not think about it. But I'll tell you who really knows everything about it it's the pedophiles themselves, particularly Mm. the offenders. They write books on this stuff. So we need to start reading. We need to start talking about it so that we can debate those people. So we can, again, disabuse them of, of their false notions and cognitive biases. Because I've spoken to one or two who are offenders and they are convinced of their stuff and they know every statistic in the book. So we don't want them to be the only ones with this information. That's why Andrew's writing a book. We can't address a problem as urgent and complicated as pedophilia and child sex abuse if we're not willing to think about it. But the intense stigma has been an obstacle for Andrew in finding a publisher. And a lot of them just like, I'm not publishing this book. So my literary agent actually said he's never had that kind of reaction where they wouldn't Mm. even look at the book. And that does frustrate me because it's like, I'm saying, I think this is a way that we can curb child sex abuse. And they're saying, yeah, but I don't want to even look at it. It takes courage to even discuss this problem, to try to have sympathy for people who are born with desires they can never act upon without committing grievous harm against the most vulnerable. So we just wanna take a moment to thank you, listener, for joining us for this difficult conversation and for caring about the humanity of everyone involved in this fraught topic, the children at risk of abuse and the unlucky men who find themselves at risk of becoming abusers. You can find Andrew Gold covering other taboo subjects with empathy and nuance on his podcast, On the Edge. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And if you appreciate difficult conversations like this one, please leave us a five-star review and tell your friends. Word of mouth is the best way we can reach new listeners. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with additional writing by Sophia Gates, editing and sound design by Josh Thane, and theme music by Josh Budo-Karp. <laughs>